Welcome to Obsidian Stories. I'm Angela Ford, founder of the Obsidian Collection Archives. Few people know that back in the 30s to the 60s, Chicago's black community of Bronzeville was wealthier than Harlem. One of the reasons was the policy game. When you are denied the opportunity to go downtown to shop, right, or any of the, all these restrictions that we had as a people, up to and including housing and where we could live, neighborhoods. These are the things that drove all. Let's hear about the numbers game that Chicagoans called policy from author Nathan Thompson. And let's hear about its economic impact on the black community. Hello all, it's Joy Weathers, host of the Obsidian Collection, Obsidian Stories. When I tell you we have a mind-blowing episode today, I mean it. This is for any and everyone who has ever loved Bronzeville and the rich black history that it holds. So we're discussing the impact that the policy kings of Bronzeville had in shaping the cultural and financial development of the neighborhood. And we're doing it with Mr. Nathan Thompson. Nathan is an expert on the economic engines of the policy kings as he's a part of the Bronzeville Historic Preservation Society, the Bronzeville Merchants Association, and is an advisory board member of the Black Metropolis Convention and Tourism Council. Basically, this brother eats, sleeps, and breathes Bronzeville, y'all. So we're super happy to have him on the show. Did I miss anything? I want to make sure I do you justice. You, you, you've covered everything that should be covered. You're doing fine. Perfect, perfect. So let's jump right into it. You wrote, honestly, I have never even seen a book that had this much comprehensive uh, knowledge in terms of the numbers game in Chicago called policy. Tell us about policy and the policy kings of Chicago. Like, what is it? Well, you know, it starts with policy. The numbers is what you know today as the state lottery. But before state governments were in control of it, Black men known as policy kings and numbers bankers were in control of it. So on one hand, the idea of gambling is about as old as the Bible. But in terms of what the revenue that is generated by those games can do is what the essence of the whole thing was about. So on one hand, policy was just gambling. But the phenomenon comes into play when you look at the accomplishments that were made with the revenue that was generated by policy. So we are talking about on the level of uh, community infrastructure, neighborhood infrastructure, the kind of things that make neighborhoods and cities strong and viable. When you have to go outside of your neighborhood to spend your money for whatever it is you need to buy, presents one dynamic. When you're doing that inside of your own community, that strengthens what you have going on. It strengthens your political position and your resolve about getting things done on a progressive level. In other words, when you are financing your own ideas and operations, you do not have to go to anyone else for that help. That strengthens your position. So if you have to go across the street begging somebody for some money to do something that you want to do for yourself, they're going to have more control over that than you're going to want them to have. But when you're doing it yourself, you're maintaining all of that control yourself. 
So that's really the essence of what that was about. Financially, what was happening with the money and the leverage that all of that provided in political circles. So that's the essence of all of that. So, and in terms of what you even just said, like an additional question that I would have about that then, at the time being, was it more so based on the fact of the Black community in Bronzeville having to rely on oneself because of, of maybe the lack of opportunities of like not being able to get a bank loan. Absolutely. You're talking about maybe a generation or two with one one or two feet out of the era of, so there was emancipation and then there was the Reconstruction era. The Reconstruction era, by all accounts, was a failure. However, there were things happening within the context of the Reconstruction era that these brothers were talking about found useful. So in other words, they saw some things happening and decided, well, those things may not have worked for the larger system, but surely they can work for us, what we're trying to do. So this is where the acumen of all of that comes from. Banking, finance, real estate, that those are the foundational things about this country. But The problem that this country has had is that it has always been about us. What do we do with the Negroes? So right now we have them in this location. In 10 years, we're going to want to develop this. What will we do with them then? So there's a constantly shuffling of of Black folks. And the the common things that run in the middle of all that is banking, finance, and real estate. All right, Attracting developers to invest so much money into a given area to build, you know, 3,500 units of housing or, or, or whatever the thing is. Let me, let, me, let me specify this point. If you have ever seen some of the old photographs of the Douglas neighborhood where the weeds were growing up out of the grounds and you had some Black residents leaning out the window or out the Have you seen those photographs that I'm talking about? I have, yes. There was a lot of controversy that leads to that. So those are the pictures that were taken basically before that whole area was leveled. Part of the argument was, you know, well, when black folks move in, they're going to tear up the neighborhood. They're going to do all these things. And here, these pictures, this is the evidence. Look at look at these grounds. Look at these properties. Those properties were not owned by the black folks in those photographs. Those properties were owned by white folks. And up until the point, they had white folks keeping grounds, doing the grounds work, cutting the grass, trimming hedges, whatever. When black folks started moving in there, the white groundkeepers decided that they were not going to pick up after Negroes. So this is part of where all of that comes from, this do for self energy. Policy was the thing that came along that helped finance all of these ideas that people were having, black men were having. But those are the kind of things that kind of serve as a foundational launching pad for where this money was going to be spent. So a lot of it was spent in the direction of housing and, and all these different things. So that's that's just part of it when you look at the Bronzeville neighborhood. Before anyone officially wanted to give it any kind of designations, it was still recognized as Grand Boulevard Douglas or Douglas Grand Boulevard. So this is why I brought that up. Because all of that is part of the foundational makeup that leads to this. When you are denied the opportunity to go downtown to shop, right, or any of the, all these restrictions that we had as a people, up to and including housing and where we could live, neighborhoods, these are the things that drove all of it. 
And that makes total sense. So in terms of that, like you definitely, it is very clear that you have done all of your research um, about this subject matter. So what led you to want to write about policy in Chicago? That is, uh, and I've talked about that a lot over the years. My whole reason and drive and everything that made me do this book, it begins with something that is inside of every Black boy ever born. And that is the connection that we have with gangster movies. Now, when you're growing up and you're feeding off of this, you know, this is a big thing. For example, back in the day, WGN Television, Channel 9, without fail, every single Valentine's Day would run the same Valentine's Day massacre movie. And whatever you were doing as a guy, whether you had a girlfriend or not, if you were going out on a date, whatever, it was irrelevant. Whatever was going on when that movie dropped is where you were going to be in front of the television watching that movie. If you had a date, your date was going to have to wait until this film was over. Okay, this is this is this is the thing. Now let's fast forward into late 80s, early 90s. One of my best friends growing up was an authority on all of the everything Chicago mob, New York mob, all of it. This is another one of the things that we fed off of. One day, it occurred to me, I wanted to know what were the brothers doing back in the days of Al Capone? That is where this all begins for me. One day after that, I walked into Woodson Library and I did not leave for nine years. That is dedication of a different level, but the results of it is definitely something that is really helping to provide that education for so many, which is amazing to see. So I understand the economic impact was significant to Black Chicago in the early 1900s, but like how did Black business owners get loans? Like how many people wound up working with policy to get their businesses or to to get those, those upfront costs taken care of? More than we will ever know, but there's lots of, evidence. There's lots of very good circumstantial evidence. And there are the personal testimonials of people who lived through that time. It is what it is. It was what it was. It was not looked upon by us in real time as anything taboo. The only ills that were associated with it in real time was what other people were coming into our community doing to us. This is where the bad side kicks in, and this is where people's indifferences and concerns and issues start to kick in. It wasn't because of the game. It was because of what, or more specifically, who the game was attracted into the community. You know, it's like that line from Cicely Tyson film, uh, Bumpy Johnson, when she's telling Bumpy, Okay, I know you want to fight these people and all that, but where do you think these fights are going to be happening at? They're not going to be happening at Park Avenue, man. This, all that bloodshed is going to be happening in Harlem. All right, so it's the same exact dynamic being presented here in Chicago and Bronzeville. Having the, the, the gumption to want to fight these gangsters is one thing, but no blood is going to be shed in Bridgeport. All of that's going to be happening in Bronzeville. 
Understood. And I mean, clearly you are over here, uh, as the kids would say nowadays, spilling tea in terms of like how some of these businesses <laughs> got that upfront money. But I've like even myself personally, I've always heard about, you know, Bessie Coleman and like her airplanes or her, you know, her flight degree and how she got the funding to go to school. So how did that work in terms of that? Our desires and ambitions in those days, our desires and ambitions were never or rarely thwarted by what someone else did not want for us. We did it anyway. You know, we had that desire. We weren't getting it from anywhere, so we did what we had to do. And everyone was cool with that because it was working. There was that period of time, but we didn't have to go downtown. We didn't have to go to all these other places. We didn't have to go to white folks asking them for money to, you know, I want to, I want to run for this office and I need to do We didn't have to do all of that. It was self-contained in that. It was a different kind of inner city, right? It was self-contained. We were doing for self. So part of the takeover of policy was the destruction of that, of the idea that we could do for self, that push, that progressive spirit. That killed off a lot of that because so many people who were involved in that were literally watching their friends and relatives and neighbors get beat up, get shot at, get, you know, all this stuff going on. You're speaking to more so, yes, once it kind of was revealed how we were still being, you know, so financially successful without, you know, outside assistance. But to even taking it back a step, like even looking at the Chicago Defender or like I did mention with with Miss Coleman, what you know, in terms of kind of revealing a little bit more in terms of what that looked like, like how crucial was that for those businesses? And also to be honest, for her legacy. You know, again, we're only talking about a couple of generations out of reconstruction, out of emancipation. So the feeling of all of that, what happened to us on a family level and personal level is still very strong in those days. Keep in mind, these days we're talking about we have this progressive thing going on here, but around us, lynchings are taking place. Clan activities taking place. There's lots of things going on that is also helping to drive our own inner determination because we know what's going on out here. We step out there, we're liable to get our heads chopped off. So whatever we're doing, we need to do it here. and We need to make it as strong as possible. That's what it was all about. This is why we established banks, insurance companies, you know, many hospitals and, and, and all of these things. Again, the infrastructure of it all. We were doing all of that. Somewhere along the way, we stopped believing in ourselves. I heard you mention this brother a couple of minutes ago. You spoke of Ed Jones. And it is clear that him alongside his brothers are part of the foundational pillars of policy and how that helped the community what is their background? Who are they? Like, how are we just now coming to know how impactful they were? Okay, well, it's no accident that we didn't know any of that stuff, but uh, it begins with their dad, Reverend Jones. They were a very trusted family. And when they went into the policy business, at that time, there were a lot of people in the business that could not be trusted. So this is kind of how this is all impacting, is that these are some guys that we can actually trust. So people were willing, more willing to spend their money with these particular guys than lots of other guys. So this is the beginning of the rise of their influence and everything. And of course, there were three Jones brothers, Ed, Mac, and George. 
Uh, Mac was the baby who died early, died in 1944 in a car crash. So in terms of looking at or understanding, you know, the the highs and ebbs, or I should say the flows and ebbs of policy, how did this come to an end in Chicago? And then what was like the next progression of the policy era? Like what happened? I know you mentioned like the Illinois State Lottery. So how does policy end? Has the Illinois State Lottery begin? Like what caused it? Okay, that is a very large question, but I'm going to condense this down. Okay. <laughs> what caused the loss? The cause was the money that we were making in the policy game. And I'm just going to say it in plain English. Black folks in Chicago in the policy business were making too much money for the establishment. So there's the beginning of it. It was a lot of money. The Chicago mob was allowed to come in and take over, which they did, and they were allowed to operate the game themselves for 20 years before the state stepped in with the state lottery. Now, at that time, this was going to be happening all over the country, and the same game was being run in government about the state lottery. It was going to fund public education. That was the language that was being used from one state to the next. And the tragedy of it here is the exact same tragedy of it everywhere else. But in answering your question, it went from us to the Chicago mob to the state. Same money. Same people spending the money. When you look at the revenue statements of the Illinois State Lottery today, the top 10 zip codes in the entire state that support the lottery are all black zip codes. Every last one of them, including 60619 at the very top where I grew up at. The money is still being generated, but it's not finding its way back into the black community in the way that policy money was. And that's the beef. That's the big beef. The money is, we're talking billions of dollars annually. Take a look around the neighborhood. Take a look at the schools that are left in the neighborhood. So this is why it's important to understand because while quote unquote policy might be gone, the money and the people who are spending that money are still here. The money is just going everywhere except the black community. I believe Harold Washington probably knew that when he was fighting to get it legalized. When he was mayor, it was a big deal for him. It's all about the money. It never, ever, ever stops being about money. And, and, and you know, real estate, banking, finance, that's what all these things are about. And once upon a time, we controlled all of that for ourselves. Definitely. And I think that's that even swings back to, you know, when we a lot of times when people are having these philosophical discussions of what what is what is the next step for the black community? What do we need to do? I always say there's a difference between equality and equity. You know, equality, that's great if you're putting me like on the same the same level of the marquee. But right, but am I getting residuals on the back end? Speaking of the story is one thing, making sure that I'm fairly compensated for the money that was generated is a completely different story, especially seeing how these gentlemen created a financial aspect or entity that is still being leveraged today. My whole family played lottery, you know, pick three, pick four. And I still know my daddy's numbers and he's, you know, long been away from this earth. So I think just showing like the impact that it has, even within the black community still 
And that's also too tied to poverty, wanting more, you know, wanting to have that equity in that aspect and, and leveraging the lottery. But as you said, it's not going to us anymore. Policy was policy. Policy could have been anything. This is another takeaway. It was policy. It was what it was at the time, but it could have been, it could have been ice cream. It could have been shoes. It could have been cupcakes. It could have been anything. The point is, we found something that we could believe in and rally around, and we did that, and it worked for us. As a product, there are many products that can do the same thing. Black people have to be willing to spend the money with each other and support each other. In those days, we had no choice. One of the fallacies of being allowed to go downtown finally was, you know, we kind of left all of that behind and started spending our money and time and everything with other people that never, ever had our best interests and still don't. We're the ones that suffer from that. Other people make all the gains from that. Go up and down the business corridors and look at the restaurants and the businesses that are operating. We are financing a lot of people's children's education and all kinds of stuff. We're not doing that for ourselves. In the policy era, we were doing those things. We were more focused at the time. It was a situation of there is no other option. You know, as you just said, when you only have a plan A, you have to do with what you have. And so I think that is a beautiful, you know, way to kind of like just sum up the importance of what policy meant for the Bronzeville community, but also like it lends to the larger conversation that we really, at this point, I'm even tired of saying it, we have to get some answers. Like, is there a convention we're going to? Is there a Zoom call? Like, what what is it that we need to do? Is it, I'm, I'm tired of saying that. Whatever it is we do, we need to focus our people on all of the capabilities that we already have in us in terms of what we can do with this financing. Just off the top of my head, I've been sick of hearing people whining and crying every time Target and, and Walmart closes a store. It's like, man, go buy the building. You can, you can sell hammers and DVDs and jeans too, right? Stop, you know, we had that mentality back then. We just go and buy the place. It's one of the famous stories about the Policy Kings. One day, John Willie walks into a bathhouse. They refuse some service because he's black. All right, no problem. He came back the next day, bought the place, and fired everybody. This is the type of drive and mentality that we need to be exercising today. It's still, it's still in us. It just has to be, you know, we got to drag it out of you, you know, but we still have that and we still have the money. We're just giving it to everybody else and adopting everyone else's cultures and all of these things. So all of this really speaks to the importance of the policy era. The policy itself was one thing, but it was what it was doing for us and what it made us believe that we were capable of doing is the takeaway from that. I can do the same thing with ice cream today, all right? Y'all, I'll make it, y'all buy it, okay? <laughs> True. And that's the thing, having that that autonomy within yourself or being a, a self-motivated, being a self-starter is, is basically what it, what it boils down to. But even to that point, like you definitely, I don't know of anyone else that I would go to into, and I'm not trying to disrespect the, the historical community of Chicago. I know everyone gets sensitive about that, but in terms of the history and the knowledge, wealth of knowledge that you have on the topic, you're now even branching out. You have your new book, Kings 2, which is the book of Cleveland. So what's the basis for that book? I don't want you to give away too much now, but is it similar to policy? How does it differ? Like, what is this of? 
Do not look for Chicago in Kings Volume 2. Two different cities, two different cultures, two different everything, political structure, the gangster system, all of that's completely different. Now, there are some connections and relationships. There's some people who cross and go back and forth. But again, beyond policy and the numbers, those guys were about the same mission that the guys were in Chicago. We can make the money. What are we going to do with the money is the question. So they were taking advantage of a lot of things that were going on with black men in general between Cleveland and Chicago that helped them drive all of this. Again, it's partly part of that, though, is kind of the same story. These guys were financing. We're talking about the first uh, uh, skating rinks, bowling alleys, all this stuff for black people up in Cleveland. So this was the thing that they were involved in. All the things were happening. Uh, one of the top guys up there was Policy King, Benny Mason built this fabulous resort on this farm in Solon, Ohio. People came from everywhere for this. I mean, all these things were fabulous, but like here, they were short-lived for exactly the same reasons. It's important to, A, know the stories as they relate here, but it's more important to connect them with the other cities that they were happening in. This is how we will begin to strengthen our resolve and our position nationally. We have a lot of things happening nationally, but we do not have a national movement. Two different things. I think, yeah. And even to wrap up, I think what you're hitting on is we have to get back to understanding the interconnectedness and that it wasn't just like, oh, Harlem was the only Black Mecca during the migration, you know, as we start to say, like, what was happening in Harlem was happening in Chicago, was happening on the West Coast. This wasn't just an isolated moment of greatness. Same thing with Tulsa. Exactly. This is what we were doing as a people in this nation. So other people went out of their way to compartmentalize and keep these stories from us. This is why we didn't grow up knowing all these things. So as we're talking about you know, what policy actually is. Like, we've been talking on about it on like a higher level. Help me out with the logistics. So, because obviously you have to have bookkeeping, you have to have like people who are actually, you know, gathering the numbers and, and where are these locations? So take me through a day in the life of like, how are you doing this? It's a business organization like every other that has the same type of job functions. You have bookkeepers and all these various job positions. All right, the heart and soul of it starts with the policy writer, then it moves to the runner. So I'm the policy writer. I'm the guy that's taking the bets. I've got regular clients all over the neighborhood. You're one of them. And I come and ring your doorbell. How you doing today, sister? You ready to play your numbers with me? You've already got the numbers you want to play. I'm taking your bets, and I give you the receipt for it. You already know the pulling time is either going to be 12 o'clock, 6 o'clock, or midnight. I'm off down the block taking the rest of the bets. At some point, I'm either going to take all these bets directly to the wheel or one of the runners is going to catch up with me and I'm going to give him this whole bag and he's going to take that and run it off to the wheel. The wheel is the headquarters. This is where all the money's coming in. This is where all the bets are coming in. So an hour or two before pulling time, and that's when we're going to pull the winning numbers. All runners, all writers have to have all their books in. Everything has to be tabulated before we start pulling these numbers. And we start pulling these numbers. Now, I'm the writer. You made one of the numbers that you played one. Okay. I'm the guy that's going to come and give you your money. You're looking for me because 
the winning numbers have been distributed all over the neighborhood by now. You saw a bundle of them out on the street, so you wouldn't grab one. You picked it up. Oh, man, my number fell. Where's Nathan? <laughs> right there. This goes on three, four times a day. Seven days a week. Day in, day out, month in, month out, year in, year out, in and around, all of that. We might get raided by the police a couple of times, but usually they're paid off. So it's just going to be, you know, we're going to take two or three guys down. We're going to buckle and that's going to be the end of it. The real thing that we have to worry about are the Italians that are going to be coming over here with the guns trying to rob us. So our guys are always on point. This goes on day in, day out. Somewhere in that equation, I get to go buy my wife a fur coat and we get to go have a vacation out at Benny Mason's farm in Ohio and get together with the rest of the policy guys and just have a good old time. But meanwhile, our guys are back home taking care of business. We're financing the grocery store. We're financing whatever they need at Providence Hospital. We're doing all of those things. You know what? I'm in my head. I'm like, this is power before power. Like this is, this is literally like, it's mind blowing. Um, I cannot tell you how much I have enjoyed this conversation. I cannot tell you how excited I am for everyone to hear it. Like this is going to be just so important just in terms of the story and what it means for our community, because I really, I really do think it's going to make us all sit in the fact of how can this be replicated? How can we do this now? I truly, truly hope so. Thank you so, so much for joining us. And anytime you want to come and share knowledge in terms of, of policy kings or anything of that nature, you're more so than welcome. Thank you so much. I enjoyed myself as well. Thank you. Well, that wraps up another amazing episode of Obsidian Stories for the Obsidian Collection. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Well, there it is just a little bit of information of the industry known as policy. Knowing more about our history and some of our economic successes will help the Black diaspora replicate those successes for the future. I'm Angela Ford, and thanks for listening to another Obsidian Story.